Hello, buenos dias, guten tag, and bonjour to everyone listening. This is the 212 podcast. Our guest today is the lead singer of a band who has been an absolute force of nature the last few years, racking up numerous awards, as well as releasing the song Feel It Still, which has been a top 10 hit in multiple countries around the world. The band, as well as himself, are known for using their success as a way to dip dive into some of the social and political changes that need to be made also. So let's jump off the question springboard into the knowledge pool of Mr. John Gawley from Portugal, the man. How are you and where are you today, John? I am doing well and I am in Troutdale, Oregon, just outside of Portland, the spot that's burning down. Well, I hope you're safe. I mean, there's a lot of things trying to kill you there then um, at the moment, COVID and fires. Not a good combination. It's funny. Like, uh, actually, heading back home, anytime we travel anywhere, people have questions about Portland. Like, how is it there? I all think it's so crazy in Portland. I think it looks it looks pretty wild in the news. People trying to burn down City Hall and federal buildings. But uh, it's been pretty chill. It's been a nice break. You must be you must be in the country and away from it. Yeah, well, it's not happening like that. Like I, that's what I see in the news, and that's what I hear from people is, "Oh my God, you're in Portland. Are you okay?" And uh, I think Portland's is doing what Portland should be doing and speaking up. It's not as crazy as it it looks, though. You so did you grow up in Portland? No, I grew up in Alaska, kind of all over the state. My parents were dog sled mushers, so we just ended up traveling around a lot growing up. That seems very uh, apt at the moment because I'm watching, and I've only just got into it. I know you've probably uh, heard it numerous times, but I, I can't stop watching Alone, the TV program. Yeah, of course. Uh, I, I look at it, and you know, it's one of those classic ones. You always look at it going, oh, yeah, I can do that uh, easy, but I definitely uh, feel like I'd be dead within a couple of days it's pretty interesting watching it right like these survivalists they, they go out there and they just can't keep weight on you know they try eating lichen they try eating all these things well i've seen caribou eat the lichen so maybe i'll eat that and it just doesn't doesn't work it's a fun show to watch you know what's funny is like i have friends out in villages that love watching that show they just get a kick out of watching people go out into the wilderness. It's literally what they do every day of their lives. You know, it's all subsistence, fishing and living out there. Like they take blueberries and blackberries and they, they live out there. You can drink water straight from some of those lakes, Lake Iliamna, places like that. And yeah, these city folk can't cut it. And you can see that there's, you know, even when they're talking about it, you know, they talk about people from different seasons, like they're, they're celebrities. They're like, oh, this guy that built this house or this guy that built this tool to, uh, I don't know, help, you know? Totally, totally. It, it's funny. I love hearing about it from Alaskans, like Alaskans that watch the show, especially villagers are are the best people to get the, the lowdown from. Like, I mean, they were cracking up about it. They were cracking up. I mean. I, I forget the guy's name, but he's, I mean, he's a total survivalist. Like, I mean, he did a really great job, built this cache up above everything. And again, couldn't really keep weight on it. And he was eating this lichen that the caribou eat. And, and they kind of pointed it out when we were, we were actually just out in Kakanak off of Bristol Bay, uh, Lake Iliamna. And it's, it's a 
village. I mean, you got to fly out to it. You got to fly out to it or take a boat. They all live off the land, and they would point it out. And they'd be like, "Yeah, remember when that season, season of Alone, when that dude <laughs> tried to eat that stuff?" So I was like, "Oh, did you ever, did you ever eat that?" No. Why Why would you eat that? <laughs> you wouldn't. It's just totally yeah. alien to them. They're like thinking like everyone's doing it, you know? Yeah, they just they get a kick out of it. That's why Alaskans are my favorite people in the world. Like their sense of humor. There is no like. When Zach and I go back to Alaska, there is no more Portugal the man. There is no more band. <laughs> like you are just out if we're going fishing or riding around on four wheelers. And it's uh, Alaska is really an amazing place for that. Like there is no such thing as celebrity when you get out to those villages. And I think that's probably good for you, isn't it? It's probably good, humbling and you get to like kind of be you almost live this double life. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we I think everybody carried that humor with us to pretty much everything we do. It's probably the only reason we've been a band this long is we just get such a kick out of everything. It's just so funny. Like when we go to these events where we got to wear suits and we got to dress up and it is kind of like playing a game. Like it's it's like playing dress up and it's funny. Like you go and hang out with Ben Stiller or like whoever it is and they're cool and you just realize like oh it's I don't know that's kind of an Alaskan thing like you kind of come at it from everybody's just people see Alaskans are so confident in in who they are there is no (laughs) you try and act tough with an Alaskan they see through it right away (laughs) because they're out killing uh, animals and eating these crazy berries that's why John yeah <laughs> that, that is a big part of it <laughs> um so the the music where where does dog sled mushing come into music where how did you get into it uh okay so so growing up my my parents both moved to alaska sh- straight out of high school and, and they're from upstate new york so i mean it's, it's not new york city it's 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 the country of, of new york but they moved up just early 70s my dad right out of high school so he, he's like 71 he moved up there and they just went straight out to the woods my dad went straight to the mountains of chase outside of Takitna, and that's where he lived he lived there for three years when he first went to alaska and he was a part of that whole back to the land movement of the 60s where people were just going going back to to find out where we come from. That's what my parents and my family was doing in Alaska, was we, they wanted to experience life as it was intended. So my dad went out to the woods. He lived for three years in the mountains of Chase, came back to Takitna and then Wasilla and met my mom. And, they, and then they had me. But all of our music growing up was pre-70. You know, it was it was all 60s. It was Motown, Sam Cooke, Elvis, uh, lots of Gene Pitney and Roy Orbison. Roy Orbison is my my dad's all time favorite singer, the Bee Gees, um, Del Shannon, th- th- things like that. So it was all these very like, I don't know if you, everybody knows Roy Orbison. He's got like crazy range. Uh, that was a lot of the stuff we listened to growing up, the Supremes. It was like a lot, a lot of like female vocalists and a lot of like dudes with really funny like falsettos, and and that's really just that's all we listened to uh, up until I think 
probably like 14 or 15. And I remember discovering at, at the time, like up until then, like I went to schools and I would kind of, I would meet kids who, who kind of knew pop culture. And like, I, I remember seeing like an MC Hammer tape and somebody listening to MC Hammer at one point. Michael Jackson was obviously around. But for the most part, I honestly thought the best music had been made. And even though we had instruments around the house, I, I would pick up a guitar and be like, I try to figure it out and say, well, I can't play uh, whatever Beatles song, you know, I, I couldn't figure it out. So I just I kind of just expected that the best music had had already been done. And it wasn't until I discovered things like that came along with hockey practice and I, I did gymnastics for like 10 years growing up so I would I would have these like social kind of moments and I remember hearing Oasis for the first time hearing Nirvana for the first time and hearing Wu-Tang and I kind of heard all of these things at the same time it was kind of introduced to like skateboard culture skate culture and um punk and it was Oasis and Nirvana and Wu-Tang that really stood out the most to me because Oasis to me just did the Beatles. You know, it was like, it was super smart. And it was this, this kind of like, they showed me that, oh, you can still make music today. You just kind of rip off the Beatles. That's fun. And I thought they, they, they were really great at that. Nirvana to me, Kurt was John Lennon. It, it sounded it, it was just John Lennon type songs, lyrics, uh, very uh, just in his own world. And it was very imaginative. And he just that's how he delivered it. You know, he delivered it in a different way. And I thought I thought it was just a really brilliant songwriting. You know, I was I was pretty lucky to, to discover music in the 90s because I think it was. Music in the 90s was kind of like the pinnacle of songwriting, in, in my opinion, and production techniques and tone. And they really kind of nailed all these things. And then Wu-Tang, that part of my music education was it, it was the biggest piece because I never learned how to play guitar growing up. And because it, it was so intimidating to me to think well, I got to play like Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix or, you know, just these these kind of like unattainable George Harrison, like levels of style and technical ability. And uh, Wu-Tang showed me that, no, you can actually just sample this music. So even if you don't know it, there was something so recognizable and fresh and fun Wu-Tang to me. It was sampling music from an era that i knew so well but it, they were doing this totally new thing with it. it it was i mean the mic selection and the pianos and like the instruments like it was so small at the time that it, you didn't have to know the songs that rizzo was sampling you you knew the tone you knew the sound of that microphone you, you knew the sound of those records and he would find the perfect loop and all of his friends would come in and rap and they would just have fun. And I think that was the biggest eye opener for me was how did they do this? You know, it was how did they grab these pieces? Like we didn't have instruments like that. We didn't have samplers in Alaska where I grew up. 
And I just found that to be so, so fun and so cool to think about, like how they grab these clips and got everybody in a room. And that's actually like where I really started out in, in music was hearing all this stuff and then going back to my house. And we had a, a boom box with two cassette decks. You could kind of record your mixtapes and things. And I remember what I would used to what I used to do was I'd record uh, different versions of songs. So I would do my own edit of songs. And no offense to Paul McCartney, but some of his parts of the Beatles songs, I'd be like, oh man, I wish I could do without that like fun little happy thing. And I would How take dare that. you, John? How dare you? <laughs> Sorry, Sir Paul. I apologize. But I would take out these parts and I would I would put it together and the interesting thing about doing that is you start to realize like how effective that part is. You know, you start to understand song structure and why it works that way. Like as good as those parts all were, like, oh, I just want to hear the chorus over and over again. I would try that. And I'd be like, no, it, it kind of needs the that like piece that gets you there. You know, that was that was like a huge part of my music education was just trying to learn how to edit music the way that Wu-Tang did without having the charisma of <laughs> the Wu-Tang members or a microphone. And yeah, it's really basically where I, I learned music was just in this really simple, simple way. And then eventually discovered everything that was coming out at the time, which in the late nineties, it was just, there was so much like pop punk and metal and that was everything to me. Metal was everything to me. I, I think post Oasis, Nirvana, and Wu Tang, it was Pantera and Slayer, and the Melvins. That was real music to me. But all of, all of those, and all of those people that you're saying, you know, even with Wu Tang, like it's, it. I, I'd imagine this resonates with you as well. But it, it's looking at someone like Wu Tang of like people that they've grown up with. And it's like they're friends that are just making music. You know, you haven't been forced together to to do something. It's just a natural thing, which I'm sure you would have had from. Uh, did you did you did any of the locals in your area were they making music? And did you come together to to kind of make it as well, similar in a similar way? Yeah, we did. Uh, you know, okay, so the. The real reason I, I actually picked up an instrument was um, so I did all this stuff at my house. This was kind of my own thing. I dropped out of school pretty early, like 13. But before I did that, I watched I, I had gone to school freshman year and I saw Zach and, and our buddy Eric, who plays in the band now. They were they were in the commons area at lunch covering Pantera and Rage Against the Machine and Slayer and Cannibal Corpse. And I remember sitting back and watching them going, man, if these kids can, like, if if we can play the songs, why can't we write them? And that was kind of my initial, like, naive thinking was, if you can play it, you should be able to write it. Which obviously isn't for everybody, but it was always my intent. I, I never wanted to, to sing in a band, if I'm being perfectly honest about it like i i wanted to write songs I'd, and i wanted to help structure and i maybe produce or something like i don't really like putting myself out there a whole lot and i've just kind of fallen into the position of doing it it, it was always just cool to me to see like people being able to play it 
And I, I remember uh, as we started recording, I would start recording my own music and eventually move to Portland. But I always just had fun recording songs. And I, w- I would do it. I'd go and there's a dude that you could pay to go and use a studio. We had cakewalk and, and all some instruments down there. And I would just go over to his place and record songs. I would just kind of do it for fun. And I would sing on it as a placeholder for hopefully eventually finding a singer or somebody who wanted to have a band. Was there anything else that you thought that you might do if it wasn't music, or I guess it came to you when you were in your teens. So maybe did you, uh, so you, you thought that you'd be writing music. You didn't think you'd actually be in a band. I had planned on writing music. I, I never planned on, um, I just don't like being in front of people, I guess. And, and that's, that's never really changed. I, I, I love playing music and I love playing music with my friends and I love turning around and seeing our drummer, Jason, how annoyed he is at, at times and trying to exploit that anger <laughs> and frustration. Uh, there's something really, there's so much magic that happens on stage and in the studio that you can't really capture it. Like it's, it's a really, really difficult thing to capture. I mean, very few people have, have done it to me. Like there's a lot of really perfect music out there. And I would say there's a handful of people who kind of like naturally do it today. Like I, I actually think King Cruel, that kid, Archie, like he, he's, he's got that. He has this like really natural delivery when he goes, Kendrick does it too. Freddie Gibbs. I mean, there, there's like some rappers that do it, but a lot of it's really crafted. You know, I think it's really rare when you find the like that magic moment gets captured. That that's that thing that John Lennon had. That you and and Kurt Cobain had it too. You know, it's it's this thing you can't really touch. And there are great musicians and there are great bands that make really great, cool music, but it's it's crafted. You know, it's not like Pete Doherty, like waking up in the morning and <laughs> kind of looking amazing for some reason. <laughs> you know, there's like Unbelievable, isn't it? on his shirt and it's like torn up and it's too big and it's ill. Everything's ill fitting. And he's Pete like, yeah, that, always, that'll do. That'll do. I'll, I'll just carry on with it. Yeah. He always looks fucking cool, man. Like he always looks cool. That's that's a really th- hard thing to capture. And I don't think he ever captured it either. Like he maybe on film and and in pictures, but it's a a difficult thing to do. And that's what I love about music. I love playing the shows and I love the unpredictable part of it. I love the, like, you should always be on, on the edge. You know, that's one thing that, that kind of one of my producer buddies has, has mentioned about the way we play and the thing and where we've gotten to like, because it's really difficult. Like I used to do a lot of takes of things. He's kind of got me to a place where like, just play it once, you know, play it, play it once or twice. And that's always been his approach with me. And that's, that's been for seven years now, eight years now that he's kind of just said like, whatever feels right. And that's why it's taken me longer. Yeah. It's taken me longer to make records because when I go in We've, we've probably made four or five albums at this point since the last, but you, you hit these like 
for me, music should always just be honest. And I, again, I didn't always think this way, but there was probably around our first record with Atlantic in the mountain in the cloud. That was the first album that really just kind of flowed and it worked. And the next one with danger mouse, like it, it kind of did that too. And it felt really good. Um, and then I stumbled a little bit on the last record. Uh, again, uh, being very candid about what I feel happened. We well, find a lot of musicians, they're like really hyper critical about, and I guess that part comes part and parcel. I mean, that's, that's why you want to get to the, the excellence that you, that you get to. But I mean, even you mentioned there, like, I want to get into some of the albums that you, that you have made and the producers, cause some of them are just fucking awesome, but you've been a, been going since i think 2002 but the last couple of years i mean i think feel it still was the the one where it, it kind of things seem to to change what do you think did change well i i had that song for four years or five years maybe before we we did it i i can tell you what changed in that in that instance i so i had held on to this thing and i i actually had a buddy come back around and say uh, he had recorded an album for us, and he said to me, uh, this is after Feel It Still kind of went number one and, and did what it did. He came up to me and he says, you know, I remember when we were making our album together, you played me that song, and you said, like, we should do it to the, the chorus, like the, the melody of Mr. Postman. And I said, no. And he was kind of giving me like a pep talk of of like, uh, that's that's why you should just follow what you think, you know, because you you have a tendency as an artist. Like that's why you bring in these producers. Like I, I think it's good to be self aware enough to know that you you don't always know. Like you don't. I don't always know what's best. I don't know what sounds best or what is the coolest. You know, I don't know what works. So that's why you have somebody in the room. But he did give me a, some confidence when it comes to kind of making making those decisions and and that song really came out of that album had it had kind of missed some of the the points of, of why i was making that record the, the whole reason it was called woodstock was i wanted to make an album that kind of reflected what a, a woodstock would sound like today because you'd kind of have like samples and you'd have they'd have laptops on stage and they'd have all these things and uh, these tricks and I was trying to approach it from the BC Boys angle and the Mixmaster Mike. Uh, That's why I, I worked with Mike D for like three years on the album, just learning samplers and just how to use some and, and apply some of these techniques. And at the last minute, it just kind of went into the box. And it's it was it was the most confusing thing for me because I was like, I was so dead set on playing all this stuff and uh, playing these samples and then adding an orchestra and like there were some really cool things that i wanted to do that just didn't really get to happen on the last album and in the middle of that frustration uh, i remember we were mixing we were mixing one of the songs and i just i wasn't into it and i, I checked out of the room because everybody kept as the the leader of the band everybody looks to you and says is that good do you think this sounds good you go, I don't know, dude, like you're just turning up a snare and I don't really care at this point. 
and I stepped out of the studio and just I went to play a bass line that I I kind of always sit down and play. And my buddy my buddy Asa Tacconi from Electric Guest, he happened to be in the the lounge when I started playing that bass line. And he just he kind of looked over and he says, "Yo, Jay, you mind if I record that real quick?" And I'm kind of psyched because I've played this for everybody and nobody was into it. And he records it and he I remember he threw a click at me at first, like a metronome. And I started playing and he goes, no, 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 like just play it without the click. And he, he did it without the click. And I, I played through it and he goes, oh, do you have like a, a bridge progression or another, like a B section? I said, oh, yeah, I could do I could do this. And I threw that down and then he just handed me the mic and said, do you have a do you have a melody? And I sang the entire chorus of that song. And then he asked if I had a verse, and I kind of sketched out the verse. I mean, most most of that song was just, it was very in the moment and what I wanted to be doing. Do you, you know? write all your songs, or do you get help in, with your band members as well? I, it, it depends. I, it could be anybody. That's, that's kind of, again, the, the most fun thing about music to me is... It's this all-encompassing, do you like making visual art? Cool, let's design some shirts. You know, do you like taking photos? Great, promo photos, album covers, uh, music videos. Like it, it, it's, it's whatever you want to do in art. Like Music kind of does that, and it can come from anywhere. It could be your photographer friend. It could be Clay Harriet, and he took a great photo, so let's use that. You know, it, and it could be the person delivering food to the studio. Like if if the idea is good, and that's always been my opinion on it. It's, I think it's really silly when we get all caught up in these like, oh, this is my art, and it, it, this is also why we credited the Marblets and we didn't try to change a, a note and get away with it. I really believe it can come from anywhere. You just have to be open to it. With with that as well, is there any time, like as a songwriter, where you <laughs> I just there's a few bands that come to mind that have kind of come out and said they need more inspiration. And is there is there a time as a songwriter where you need more content? Do you need more stuff to happen in your life or something to write about? <laughs> uh, no, actually. <laughs> Actually, it, you know, you know what I think it, about all of this stuff, like it, especially with bands. So but bands are extremely difficult. It's, it's it's extremely difficult to keep a band together, let alone like writing together. I mean, it's it's hard enough to get us to all go to dinner together. You know, just waiting for where's Jason? Oh, he went back up to his room to get something like it's it's hard to keep everybody together. I did have a conversation with a, a friend who kind of gave me this. We were we were talking about he, he's a lot older. He's my dad's age. This this musician and he was talking about the best band he's ever played in. They they lived in Chicago together. And they slept on the floor together. And this is after they've all found success and all are all successful in their own right. He said the best band I ever played in slept on the floor together. And we could all afford our own places, but we slept on the floor together because we knew we'd be a better band. And I've never played in a band like that again. 
and that has, that has nothing to do with songwriting, I guess. But uh, I guess what I'm saying about it is you can find that ins- inspiration in anything. And I love it when Kyle shows up and he, he says, hey, I've been playing piano and I kind of have this classical thing and it goes like this and you can take something from it. Because it seems like a lot of you have got different backgrounds as well. I mean, even just the, um, I mean, I could just have a couple of hour chat with you about uh, different types of genres of music anyway. But I mean, it seems like all of you have a different lens in terms of the types of genre that you can bring to the table. Yeah, every, everybody does come from kind of a, a different scene. Eric was uh, in the Seattle scene for a while after high school. Uh, he was signed immediately to Capitol Records and Columbia and all these places. Like, he, he's just a really great guitarist. But everybody does different things. In like a, I search for that inspiration in the people that are, are around me, and and that it, it will always be that way. That's the way I've always been. There's something new and fresh about the new face in the room. And that's the muse today. Did you get to work? I mean, you were talking about, you know, Nirvana and Oasis and, and did you get to meet any of any of those now? Like, did it, did it kind of like a surreal moment where you you kind of meet the people that you were listening to? <laughs> yeah, my kind of dream right now is I've, I've been wanting to reach out to uh, Liam and Noel and have them both plan a song because I want Oasis to feature on a song. And, there, and everybody said there's no way that will happen, so I haven't I haven't really gone after it. But on the last record, Noel, man, Noel is we don't know him. Like he, we we threw in you and I are gonna live forever with the the same melody from Live Forever on a song called So Young on the last album, and we sent it over to Noel to to kind of check and be like hey is it cool if we if we use this and he i think he responded to us months later he responds hey i just listened to the song uh i love it call up our publisher and and we're back and we go okay great now we got to call noel's publisher there goes has to be 50 percent of the song (laughs) you know there's no way you're getting away with less than that like it's the chorus of one of their biggest songs, even though it's a small part of our song. And we called up his publisher and they Noel had given us gratis license. He he didn't want anything for it. And he had written this this really nice note about how much he loved the song. And I've kind of had that same experience. We've played shows with Liam, been on tours with Liam, I guess. And they, they both just come off as really down to earth. I mean, they're like working class folks. I mean, we definitely have similar background in that sense. Lots of construction background. But uh, yeah, we haven't really hung out with a lot of those people. We've reached out to Dave Grohl <laughs> to play drums on things because we know he does that, but he's never responded. But I mean, and, uh, that's pretty fucking cool. The 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 Liam the Liam and Noel stuff. That's that's pretty epic in in itself. I mean, if you're listening to it when you're growing up and then you get that, you that's pretty like you you must have been like a little kid. Oh, everything, dude. Like uh yeah, that that's amazing. Um 
Rizza actually reached out to me after Fila so blew up, which was even even crazier because Rizza wanted to call me. And I talked to our manager. Our manager's like, yeah, dude, I don't know why he wants to call you, but Rizza's going to give you a call like in the next couple of days. And I was like, oh, cool. Like he's going to want to talk about the Marvelettes or like, you know, I, I'm thinking like Fila so and all this stuff. He called to talk to us about, he wanted to talk to me about evil friends, just arrangements. Just like the arrangements of the songs and the way they were pieced together. And it was it was so cool seeing somebody, just hearing somebody who I studied so much growing up and was such a huge, huge, just massive part of my musical journey asking how we put together songs and just his the way he was hearing it was the most rizza and wu-tang thing i've ever heard which it's it just everything you'd be like man when you start out the song it's all soft and shit and then you go all punk and shit and then it goes all beatles and shit and he said that to me and i was it was just like this really like mind-blowing <laughs> moment for me where I just went, oh my God, I cannot believe I'm hearing this because he was he was like literally like thinking of our music in terms of sampling. Like you're like sampling this like soft music and then you sample punk and then you sample the Beatles at the end. And that was uh, probably my coolest moment of I can't believe this is happening right now. Just because why would RZA ever reach out? Why would I have ever have anything for, for RZA? He's kind of done everything. Noel and Liam, like, you could, like, maybe cross paths at some point. And I, I couldn't ask for a, a better experience with, with those two. Like, they, they just so legit care about up-and-coming musicians and very cool but. and it's like they say don't meet your idols but i mean it, that's pretty that's that is pretty cool but and the the band itself i mean luxembourg the man djibouti the band the man uh what portugal why why portugal the man where did that come from? <laughs> I, I, djibouti the man actually sounds a lot better to, to be fair I know, I know. After the fact, we're like, man, like Afghanistan, the man is like, it, it makes yes. a lot more sense considering like our stance on, uh, you know, politics and everything. But it, it was just kind of, I think it was just the furthest place from us um, on the map. Like being from Alaska, it was like the other side of the world. To me, like maybe we should have gone Australia both have this Captain Cook connection, but I I think I was just learning about like the explorers who came here and destroyed our people and uh, did everything they did. And Portugal just had always been this thing that was on my mind. And I guess in creating the the band, it was like this kind of in in choosing just a country in general. Like I was trying to name a character, like a singular character that represented a group of, of people. And I, I just kind of thought that a, a country does that. And it go it kind of goes against everything that I believe about countries anyway. I don't believe in these arbitrary borders and lines, but that's the band name we picked. And 
we are sticking with it. I mean, you said that there as well. Like, I mean, you've you kind of delve into the the per- political side of stuff as well. I mean, there's there's uh, I was reading about you know just before I came on, and you've kind of touched a little bit on it in that you received that legend award at the Native American Music Awards in in Niagara Falls, and I I, I just wonder what was what's been your kind of most proud moment in from a political or social uh, change perspective because that's that's pretty amazing to receive that award yeah definitely you know i'm i'm pretty like uh i think most people are probably this way i'm not very good at accepting uh any sort of praise for something that i don't believe should be should get praise if if that makes sense like we have this conversation a lot because people will step in and we do land acknowledgements everywhere we go and land acknowledgement just so we're all clear on it it's the basic most basic approach to things and i I look at it as just manners and welcome to country in australia kind of lays it out in the best way because it's welcome to my country you're allowed to cross now i'm like welcoming you here and that that's the way i I look at land acknowledgements um it is just a really simple gesture but we've had people kind of step in and say like oh you can't do that or you're already doing enough and my take on that is we're not doing anything we're just asking if we can come into someone's home because just to just to just if anyone hasn't actually read about it you were doing acknowledgement to countries in in every uh, every gig that you were doing, weren't you? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you like a, a little bit of the background on it. Um, we we grew up in Alaska, and it it's kind of the last stop for colonialism and settling in North America. So growing up in the dog mushing community, we we were always going out to villages. Like we were really close to the native community, and I remember leaving Alaska. And just kind of thinking all those John Wayne movies and all those stories were just true. Like, uh, there was a war or some sort of something happened and they're, they're, just, they're just not down here anymore. And as we would tour around, I would say, well, this is weird because every now and then we cross through like Albuquerque, New Mexico, and you, and you see Native art. And you see indigenous art and indigenous representation just here and there in these pockets. And I started going back, back home to Alaska, looking for connection, looking uh, like I'd go to Shishmaref and hang out with the Nyakpucks and Nupiak people out there and and kind of say, how do we connect with people? And as you do that, you start to realize Okay, this is a, an ignorant thing for me to be asking because why would Inupiaq people be any more connected with uh, warm springs and let alone Aboriginal people in in Australia? Like, why would they be? You know, any more than Plinket down south. And we started to realize there was this like this disconnect between um, tribes and peoples and we just started trying to put together a way to bring representation to our our shows and just just off offer that it's 
again, it's not ours to give. If if people of that area want to to come and do something, it's, it's their space. But it wasn't until traveling down to Australia that we actually were able to do it. Because in Australia, you guys have a, a program called Welcome to Country. And there's even a nice, shiny website that you can go and make a donation and have Uncle Alan Madden come down in in Sydney and introduce you to the set, give you a little bit of history. Um, Auntie Marucci Barumba in uh, Melbourne. Uh, she'll come out and tell you about her peoples and how she's one of the last of her people. And when she goes, it, that group is gone. That mob no longer exists. And she'll she'll tell you about that. And it became this this kind of journey of uh, just education, which which was it, it's really. Um, it's really humbling being being able to be in the presence of of these elders everywhere we go but it it was really uh it's also really eye-opening when you you hear a story from uncle alan madden in in australia in sydney and it's the same story that i heard from percy nyakpuk back home in in alaska out in shishmaref and the story of colonialism and settler colonialism and all and all of this it's it's just it's been the same everywhere i mean the same guy that discovered captain cook he found alaska and found and didn't discover shit but came across australia and these places and brought that same destruction to those those places and it, to me like our our whole journey it centers around it's more indigenous knowledge and land, what that represents. I think land back to me represents basic manners. Like we all get raised with basic manners. Like turn around, you realize you're in somebody else's home right now. And that's, that's my approach to it. I, I don't look at it like it's, it's pretty easy to sit back and be like, well, my ancestors conquered yours. And how would we look at that today? You know, it's it's pretty easy to, to take a look back at things and say, oh, I guess there were mistakes made. We should, at the very least, be trying to make make things right. Which make which makes sense. Why an, an award for for something like that? You know, when you feel so passionately about uh, the fact that I mean, everyone should be doing the same. Uh, not not just. Uh, you know, a select few, you know, everyone should be kind of doing this and it should should be kind of non-negotiable. It makes sense that an award feels, could feel trivial. But I guess awards that you that you would be happy about and that, that maybe because it sounds like you're pretty humble, you probably uh, feel a little bit embarrassed about as well. But, you know, you've got, you know, the, the Grammy Awards, but you won the best pop duo group performance. And then you've got the 2008 Alternative Press uh, Best Vocalist of the Year, which probably you're not going to like as well because you don't see yourself as a vocalist but um how, how do, do you are you able to kind of take a step back and say look i mean this is this is pretty this is pretty amazing that i've got these awards oh yeah definitely i, I it's it's always cool to be recognized for something I, th I think that's i mean that's a really great feeling it's just 
You know, if if I wouldn't tell you anything, like the hardest part for me is knowing how much it it would mean to somebody else. If if that makes sense, like, and that's I don't know why my head goes there every time we get anything. I go, man, this Grammy would mean so much <laughs> to any other band. You know, this would mean so much. Like it, it's it literally changes your life. Like that that one award, and you know that you know that this stuff isn't necessarily real. It's it's real in terms of like it's. I mean, you're being voted in by your peers, somewhat, and it's. But it is popularity. I mean, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of great music that people will never hear. And, you know, that, I don't know, I guess that's kind of just what it is at the end of the, at the end of the day. It's, it's cool to be recognized and it's cool to, man, like I, I never would have dreamed we would get a Grammy, let alone pop. Like we, we got a Grammy in pop music and everybody at the, in the Grammy committee sat back and they went, is this an alternative band or a rock band or what is it? So it's pop. Like of all the things that they're going to try to stick us into, it's pop. Yeah, you've got and this 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 lead singer John Gawley, who is a Pantera loving lead singer, is now a best pop by best pop. You know. Yeah, which is 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 cool. I mean. Man, that's the most impressive shit to me. Looking, looking back on on everything that has happened, it's we won a Grammy up against Justin Bieber and Despacito. You know, we we won a Grammy against some people that I never thought we'd even be competing with. It's crazy. Um, and I guess with that comes kind of notoriety as well. And, and you know, you get asked to do more things. And, and I, one of the things I do always wonder with, you know, because performances obviously change from depending on where you are or what you're doing or there might be some emotive thing. But you've appeared on The Tonight Show, Jimmy Fallon, Conan, Ellen Generous, Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Kimmel and James Corden. I mean, how do those performance differ and i've always wondered this with musicians but how do they differ in comparison to i don't know like a, a live gig or, or something else you know well i will tell you every time we do those shows they go hey would you like another take and every single time we go no i i kind of i like the risk i like the risk factor and in, in all of that stuff it's I kind of just sounded like that. And I love the idea of potentially going back and watching a not so great performance because those are kind of funny to me. Like I, I like when there's these like odd moments that happen. It's unbelievably surreal doing any of that stuff. I'm hanging out with any of those folks. It's so cool. You know, well, and you've I, I just you've got this juxtaposition that. as well because you've got you know I've just looking at you for the last like couple of months of what you've been doing you know there's like an opening for uh, for Guns and Roses and then there's also playing a small show in near your hometown do you know what I mean there's 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 such a juxtaposition in in some of the stuff that you do yeah I think it's pretty clear where we stand on everything when we do all that stuff it's. We just think it's fun and funny, and I, I think that's the best way to approach any of it. 
I'm always blown away when I look out and I see people are singing along. And it's the thing that's even more mind blowing, I guess, is actually when the crowd is just perfectly still and they're just kind of taking it in. I love those those moments because it it is a it feels like a little bit more than a band in the sense that I don't think we should even be there. Like, I don't think we're at that same caliber or that same a- appreciation for the the stage. But maybe that's what, what keeps us there, I guess. But I'm, I think what, it, it must be good as well to see, be able to see the faces, you know, like and see how much emotion you're actually getting from from people if there is a smaller crowd. Like just being able to see their eyes and what they're, what they're how they're feeling about what you're playing, you know? Oh, it, it made us such a better band. That's that is one hundred percent. I I I would not make music if it wasn't for those reactions at our earlier shows. They helped inform me. I'll give you a quick run through the albums. Our our first album was every single idea you have. This is the era of have a lot of ideas as long as it's loud and it's messy. It's that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to add in some of the prog stuff. I wanted to add in some of the metal stuff. I wanted to like kind of shout, but I'm not really good at screaming. So like I'll just shout. And I, we did all this stuff and going out and playing it live. Our first album is every idea you have time, tempo changes, everything, time signature, all of it changes constantly. We would go out, we would play it. And I would take a little mental note every time I'd hit that transition. I'd go, yeah, that doesn't even work. Like, that's not even how music works. And th- so the second album we go in, I say, well, those prog parts were pretty fun. But the best parts of the set were when we kind of went into those bluesy, like, jams. So we made kind of a bluesy record with some prog stuff. And after that album... Everything up until this point is just like played on single strings, basically, or like my best attempt at like these notes work together. Um, third album, we get there and I say, well, some of the prodigy stuff was getting in the way and the transitions weren't great. I'm going to learn how to play chords. And I remember the first chord I ever learned how to play was a G7. And I still kind I barely kind of know what that means at this point in my career but i learned how to play a g7 i know that because the guy who taught me said that's a g7 and i learned how to play chords and our third album is that's where the acoustic guitar and all the chords came in was i'm going to try and play chords throughout this whole record and i did that fourth record is a satanic satanist uh i've learned how to play chords at this point i'm going to try to write songs in three minutes because Motown and Soul and everything I grew up on was Ain't No Sunshine's less than two minutes. You know, can you do that? I mean, probably not. It'll probably never happen again. But trying to write songs in three minutes was the goal of Satanic Satanist, was how do you structure songs now? So I've learned chords, now I'm learning song structure. And then... American Ghetto comes and it was sampling. I wanted to learn how to sample. So I went in with Corner Shop's sitar player and guitarist, uh, Anthony Safri, and he showed me how to sample, like 90s style 
sampling drum beats and scratching and doing all this stuff. And from there, we went to Atlantic Records, and it was kind of pulling together all of that knowledge and saying, just like these are kind of the best pieces of what I've, I've picked up. And then eventually, you work with Danger Mouse because you make a record like In the Mountain in the Cloud, and he teaches you a little bit more about yourself and how to be honest. With, with your music and uh, it's it's just a constant learning experience and I, I think that's again like one of the most beautiful things about music is, is how honest and free it is I mean that's all I ever want this experience to be and there are parts of me that I, I get to this point when you talk about like looking for inspiration like yeah like oh I, I kind of need something else in my life it there's never a shortage of, of inspiration. I, I, w- I wouldn't say there's a shortage of it because you should be out experiencing and you should like, just write about what you know. I think it should just be more honest um, kind of about what's happening. As soon as you're, you're looking for it, it becomes difficult to find. But I, there's going to be a point where I've done all the things I want to do. You know, that's the scariest thing looking ahead is probably hit that point someday and say i've kind of done everything i wanted to do like why what's i don't really need to do anymore i wonder if uh, springsteen and uh, bob dylan and all, all that jazz feel feel the same way but and um, john we're coming to the to the end of the episode and i just the the seventh album you were mentioning there was was produced by danger mouse which is insane and then the Eighth was uh, Mike D from Beastie Boys. Uh, I mean, that's pretty amazing to just be having that uh, that input. I just wonder. Last question from me is like, what does future success look like for you and and the band? Future success from from Feel It Still on. You have to recognize that that song never happens again. It it just doesn't because it's it's not how music works you can do something equally successful but it it can't be that song you know and and it can never be that and there's there's something about those moments uh that was something i always wanted to create and some of my favorite artists only did that once danger mouse being one of them i always wanted to write a song like crazy i always wanted to write a song like song two or do like what the gorillas did where it's like it's left of center but it's crosses the pop somehow and i kind of did that um future success is is honesty in the music and and writing i've sat back and i i think we'll be finishing up this this record probably in the next couple months but i've i've started over a million times the pandemic was so difficult for me in like in personal ways and health reasons and uh, some some things that I had going on that I I took a step back towards the end at, at the beginning of this year and I wanted to write an album that was more f- focused on us and our relationship with each other and yeah like yeah there's like politics there's a lot always politics but I think success looks like making an album that I really want to make and kind of want to make an album that sounds like a band. And that sounds really fun to me.
Awesome. Well, John Gawley, it'd be great having you on. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and good luck with the, the next album. We look forward to hearing it. Yeah, thanks so much, man. This episode of the 212 Podcast was produced by Podlack. We make great podcasts even better. Find us at podlack.online. Podlack.online.